The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Introducing this morning, we're starting a series on the book of Romans. And it's always interesting when you start a new book, uh, a new series, a new study. Uh, There's a whole Bible, 66 books. Why do you choose one and not another? I don't know. (laughs) You pray, you just seek God, see what he says. And uh, why Romans? There's lots of good reasons. It's a great book. Uh, Martin Luther says this about the book of Romans. He says, Romans is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart. Okay, anybody there yet? Got Romans memorized yet? Anybody? Well, see, there you got work to do. Uh, But also should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. And of course, we know that it was uh, Luther's own meditation and reflection on the book of Romans that really led to and triggered the Reformation. And as such, it really has a significance of being probably the single most um, impacting book in all of Scripture in terms of Western history and Western civilization. Uh, This book and Martin Luther's reflection on it really set the course uh, of where the church went for the next 500 years. And so uh, it's had great influence in the church and in in, uh, the shaping of modern Christian thought. Uh, It is the longest of Paul's letters, and as such, it really represents the most comprehensive, detailed picture of Paul's theology. And so for that, it has great value uh, to us uh, in really working out our own understanding of who God is and what his purpose is in the world. Uh, Some people might argue or might say, well, why not just study, you know, why don't we just study the Gospels all the time? After all, it's the story of Jesus. Isn't that enough? Interestingly, when you look at how the books were written and how they were circulated, uh, the epistles, the writings of Paul, really came long before and were circulated long before the Gospels. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I won't go into all of them. But uh, to be honest, there's a lot about Jesus in the Gospels that we would not understand if it wasn't for the writings of of Paul and, and books like Romans really helps us understand what Jesus was all about and what he was doing in the stories of the Gospels. And so it's, it's a very helpful book for us, and I hope it is for you as well. And um, there's one more good reason I want to uh, look at the book of Romans, but we'll talk about that at the very end of the message. So today we're going to look at the introduction. Uh, Paul, uh, it's his longest letter. This happens to be his longest introduction. And if you were to write a letter in Roman days, you would write it something like this. You would say, your name, Tim. You might say where you are, Ching Mai. And you would say who you're writing to, to my friends back in Chicago. And a short blessing, uh, usually peace to you, grace and peace to you, something like that. That was a standard um, introduction to a letter in those days. Uh, This one is just a tad longer than that. And what Paul says uh, has great significance about who he is as a person. And it's very interesting 
the things he chooses to say about himself. So let's read verses 1 through 7. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line, and he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by, pow- by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Christ, God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them, so that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. And you are included among those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. I am writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and are called to be his own holy people. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Uh, first of all, a little bit, we're going to start actually with the two line, to the Romans. Uh, give a little background about who the Roman church was and what, why Paul was writing. He says this is written to the saints in Rome. Uh, the interesting thing about the, the church in Rome is that we don't really know how the church in Rome began. But we do know this, that none of the apostles went to Rome to plant the church there. Uh, Paul, up to this point, had never been to Rome. None of the other apostles, at this point, had yet been to Rome. And so it's a bit of a mystery how this church just sprang up there. Uh, It's clear, though, that it was begun by lay people, everyday people who had come to Christ and uh, started meeting and gathering in Rome. It's likely that uh, we know in Acts at Pentecost that there were uh, believers from Rome who experienced Pentecost. So certainly some of them would have been converted, would have come to Christ. Um, uh, it's also likely that, you know, the phrase, all roads lead to Rome, that Roman citizens would have, in trade and commerce, would have come in contact with Christians as they traveled around the Roman Empire, going to places like Corinth or Ephesus or Galatia that they would have come in contact with Christians and may have come to Christ that way. It's also very likely that Christians from around the empire traveled to Rome uh, doing trade and commerce and likewise shared their faith. Uh, Somehow or other, all we know is that there very early on was a very active, healthy church in Rome. Uh, by, uh, By at least 50 AD, there was a large Jewish congregation and most likely the first converts, the first followers of Christ in Rome would have been Jewish, uh, like those who had come to Christ at Pentecost. Um, By 50 AD, Emperor Claudius uh, kicked all the Jews out of Rome. Uh, And so during that time from about 50 to 54 AD, uh, what was left in Rome were believers who were not Jewish, Gentile Christians. And so for a time, the, the, the church grew kind of apart from its Jewish roots. And so uh, in 54 AD, when the Jews were allowed back in, the, the church there may have had kind of two faces, a more Jewish face and a very Gentile face, right? And uh, the, some of those issues come up later in the book of Romans as Paul tries to negotiate and navigate between these two groups of Christians. Um, 
Paul wrote the letter most likely in the winter of 56 or 57 while he was in Corinth uh, at the end of his third missionary journey. Um, And he was writing to a church that he knew was very Jewish and very Gentile and maybe not always uh, agreeing on everything. Um, So why did Paul write? What was his purpose? What, what, What was his goal in writing this letter? Well, it it seems that, and if you could put yourself in Paul's shoes, Paul is at the end of his third missionary journey. He has spent a good portion, mostly all of his ministry life, evangelizing the areas between Jerusalem and what would be modern-day Greece, Athens and Corinth, uh, kind of belt of Greece and modern-day Turkey, northern uh, Israel. Uh, And he has been very productive. Right? He has seen churches planted all over this whole belt of the Mediterranean. And he's at the end of his third missionary journey. And while there are still huge, vast areas in there that are not reached for the gospel, in Paul's thinking, he's, he has, he's brought the gospel to those places. And he expected fully for the churches in those cities to be taking the gospel forward to, to the other regions. Right? And Paul was very much a pioneer apostle. Uh, the apostle to the Gentiles, as he as he explains here, and uh, as he was stuck in Corinth in the winter of fifty six fifty seven, lots too much time on his hands. Paul begins to think about the next phase of his ministry, and if you can kind of picture the Roman Empire in two halves, the eastern and the western half, he had, in Paul's mind, he had conquered the eastern Roman Empire with the gospel. He had firmly planted churches throughout the eastern half of the empire. And uh, it's apparent as Paul writes the letter to the Romans that he's now looking toward the western half of the Roman Empire. Now, and this is just kind of the crazy insanity of, of Paul, you know. It's like, the whole known world before me, I've, can't, I've conquered the eastern part of the known world, now the western part, right? Isn't that how you think about things? You know, the eastern hemisphere did that already. Okay, the western hemisphere, here we come. Well, that's kind of the ambition and the mind and the vision of Paul. And so the Western Empire would have been comprised of the region of Spain, kind of Italy, west. And uh, it's clear that he had set his focus, and he talks about it later in the book of Romans, on going to Spain and on extending the gospel from Rome west. Right. So there's a guy who, who pictures uh, fulfilling the Great Commission in his own lifetime. Right. I'm going to reach to the end of parts of the world. Okay. It's a good thing he didn't know about Thailand. <laughs> I don't know what that would have done to Paul to know that there were actually people beyond there. I don't know how he would have dealt with that. But, um, but that was his vision, right? That was his passion. That was his strategic thinking. So he's thinking about his next phase of ministry, right? Uh, and strategically, he's picturing how this is going to work. And for him, going to Spain would mean really going through Rome, uh, Rome, the capital city of the Roman Empire. A, uh, a place that was worth visiting. Uh, he knew about the church there. And it's very likely that he is thinking, you know, if I'm going to reach to the Western Empire, I need a base. Antioch is too far away. And it's very likely that Paul is laying the groundwork for a future ministry and really wants to set up for himself a, a base in Rome. Right? He wants to gain support of the churches there. And, I, and you can just see him, you know, his his mind working. Okay, I've got to have a base of operation. And he's seeing himself uh, established with the church in Rome, partnering with them. So if you kind of get that context in that picture, 
the book of, of the letter of Romans is a lot like a letter you may have written as you prepared to go out and do ministry, as you prepared to come to Asia, right? You you needed support. You needed partners. You needed a base of people who would send you, who would be part of your ministry, right? And so you sent out letters, you visited people, you built a base, right? And we still do that. We still uh, we still write letters. We still correspond to to bolster that support. And that's really what Paul is doing with the, with the letter of Romans. Um, Paul had two things going against him, though. One, uh, he didn't know most of these people. So whereas you probably wrote your letters to people who knew you, or at least had some contact with you, he's writing to a group of people who don't know him, uh, who have never met him personally. Uh, there were a few believers in Rome who Paul knew. But the majority of the church would have been new to him, and they would have been, uh, he would have been new to them as well. Uh, unfortunately, though, for Paul, even though they didn't know him personally, they did know his reputation. <laughs> and he was a guy who was well-known throughout the Roman Empire, and a lot of his reputation wasn't always that favorable. Right? Uh, the Jews, to, to, to most Jews, Paul was not Jewish enough. Right? And there were a lot of rumors about him being, um, you know, burning the Old Testament, uh, trashing the Old Testament, not upholding the value of the Old Testament. Right? So to the Jews, there was a lot of doubt about Paul. Even Jewish Christians doubt about this guy who seemed to be so anti-Jewish. Uh, at the same time, to the Gentile believers, they saw him as a, an ex-Pharisee who was a Jew who was oftentimes way too Jewish. Right? It's kind of the, you know, you can't win. So, Paul has his work cut out for him as he sends this letter. He needs to uh, pave the way for a favorable relationship. That's really the goal of the letter. It's a good PR campaign uh, to to present himself to a church that he hopes to partner with. Uh, We know that the letter worked. Uh, And even though Paul did not quite go to Rome under under the plan that he was thinking of when he wrote the letter... He did end up going three years later to Rome as a prisoner of, of Rome as he appealed to Caesar. And uh, we know that when he landed us on the shore south of Italy, about 40 miles south of, of Rome, uh, that the believers there heard of his arrival, and literally hundreds of, of believers marched some 30 miles outside of the city to meet Paul. And they gave him this huge really heroes welcome and parade as they brought him into Rome. So whatever, whatever he wrote worked, right? And it, it did exactly what he wanted it to. It marshaled for him great support among the Roman church. Um, so, so if nothing else, it's a, good, it's, a good, uh, it's good instruction for how to write a prayer letter, right? If you, can, if you can write a prayer letter like the book of Romans, I think it'll do wonders for your ministry. Um, that might be a bit much to ask. I mean, he did have apostolic authority and all that kind of stuff. Um, at the same time, though, I wonder if there isn't some things to think about in terms of what Paul chose to, to, to talk about, right? Uh, and whether you're writing a support letter or whether you are just introducing yourself in general, how do you introduce yourself? Right? 
what is it about you that you want people to to know? Uh, you know, I've never actually done this because when I, you know, God was very gracious and, and brought Denise to me. And so I never had to date much because I was really scared of girls. And I never did, you know, and, and the whole thing now is like these personal ads. You know, it's all online dating and I don't know how that would go, but... You know, you, you write you write this description of yourself. Apparently, this is how it works. I don't know, but you you say something about who you are, and you put it up, and you hope that people will read it and go, "Wow, I'd like to get to know this person. I think I want to marry them." Right? Uh, what would you say? You know, if you want to if you want to introduce yourself to somebody, you want to make a good impression. Um, what do you say about yourself? What do you put forward about who you are as a person? In the first seven verses of Romans, we really get a picture of what Paul thought was most important about himself. Right? As he puts himself out there, what did he want people to know about him? Right? And as we reflect on, on what Paul considered important about his life, it's, I think, beneficial for us to ask ourselves, who are we as a person? How do we identify ourselves as a human being? Right? What is it that we want people to know and see about us? As we write letters, as we correspond with people, as we, as we introduce ourselves, what is the thing we want to stand out to be remarkable about us? People go, that person is this kind of person. Right? Well, let's see what Paul says. And to do that, uh, I want to answer three questions, real quickly, three questions that Paul states about himself. And the questions are, who do I serve? What am I called to? And what is the overarching purpose of my life? Okay. Uh, first question, what, who do I serve? Uh, notice what Paul says. He says, this letter is from Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Right? First thing he says about himself, he identifies his master. He says, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Uh, who do you serve? Now, you may be thinking, well, I don't know who I serve, but I really don't want to serve anybody, right? I don't want anybody telling me what to do. Anybody there? <laughs> right? Sad thing is, that's not actually an option. Every, uh, every one of us is a slave to something or somebody, some force. Right? And, and here's the deal. You know, when you are a slave, you want to be a slave to a good master, right? You've got to be a slave. And in, in Paul's day, they would have understood this because slavery was quite commonly practiced. And uh, actually, being a slave to a good master was a pretty good gig. Uh, it could mean you could actually have a great deal of freedom and authority, power. Um, many slaves actually administered huge estates of wealth and actually lived quite well. So the real issue was not about being a slave. The question was who your master was. Right? If you had the right master, this was a good deal. So the, the issue is not, you know, don't get hung up about, I'm not going to be a slave, I don't want to be a slave. You're a slave, okay? Just, just know that. You're a slave to something. You serve something. The question is, who's going to be your master? And there's, there's kind of two broad categories. There's a master who's very selfish, self-serving, um, uncompassionate, is that a word? Discompassionate. Unloving, there's a good word. Unloving, uncaring, harsh, cruel, right? Or there would be the category of master who would be loving, compassionate, unselfish, caring, and giving. Right? Now, obviously, which one do you want to serve? You know, Mr. Selfish or Mr. Caring and Self-Sacrificing? Well, we're going to serve this guy over here, right? right? Um, 
let's look at, at your options of who you could serve. You can serve Jesus. You can serve yourself. Okay? Jesus sacrificed his life for you. He's infinitely compassionate, good, and merciful. He's kind and loving. You, because of your fallen nature, are selfish, sinful, wicked, and evil. Okay? Who do you want to serve? And who do you want to serve? Uh, it's incredible that we honestly believe and we're so deceived to think that we would be a good master to ourselves. Right? We can't be. We're too selfish. Right? We're too caught up with ourselves. We are too self-absorbed because of our sin nature. Right? Honestly, you don't want to be a slave to yourself. Right? You don't want to end up being a slave to your own selfish whims and desires and lusts. Right? It is bondage. Paul says, praise God, I have been set free from myself. I can be a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the first thing he identifies himself. Uh, He says, I am, this is Paul, first thing you need to know about me is I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Second thing, uh, he talks about what he is called to. He says, and by the way, this first verse in the Greek is very abbreviated and condensed. Each of these is basically a two, two or three word shot. Literally, it says, Paul, a slave of Jesus, called an apostle. Okay, he says, I'm called an apostle, called to be an apostle. Um, Paul had a unique calling. Okay? Most of us are not called to be apostles. The word can have several meanings. Paul here probably means two, one uh, a messenger, a sent one who's a, a missionary, which he was. But also, Paul reserves the right to be an apostle, one of the founding members of the church. Right? It was that authority that enabled him to write scripture. Right? Uh, thankfully, nobody's compiling my emails into a book and distributing them as the Bible. Right? Uh, Paul got that right because he was specially uniquely chosen and called by God to be an apostle. But while he had a very unique calling, the truth is every believer is called by God to something. Right? We're called first to him personally, which he talks about in verse 6. He says, you have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. You are called to belong to Jesus Christ. But beyond that, you are also called to a unique ministry in God's purpose and plan. Uh, and I love that. God, the God of the universe, has planned out his program from the beginning of time to the end. And you are a part of that plan. He has called you to very clear and specific things. Uh, He has called you out to serve him and to be uh, involved in partnership with him in ministry. now, I don't know, and you may ask, I'm sure you, know, you want to ask, how do I know what God's called me to? Right? Does he like send an email? Does it come by like in the mail? How do I know this? I don't know. You know I don't know how it works for everybody. And scripture's not real clear. I do know how it worked for me. Uh, when I was 16 years old, God just impressed upon me that I was being called to be a pastor. I don't know how. I, don't, you know, I didn't hear voices. There's no email. Uh, You know, it's back before email. Uh, A long time ago. I don't know how it happened, but God impressed upon me that that was going to be the call on my life. And I didn't know where, I didn't know how. 
for a number of years I avoided that call. Uh, at repeated times throughout my life, I've given it back to him and said, God, if you want to take back this call, I'd be happy to like, you know, just be a carpenter or something. I don't know. God has kept that call on my life, right? Uh, it's true for all of us. God has a call on your life. God has a mission for you, right? Uh, it may be here. It may be somewhere else. Uh, I think oftentimes the place is not nearly as important as what he has gifted you and equipped you, prepared you to do, right? God has been orchestrating the events of your life. And what you're doing is significant for God's kingdom, right? Uh, whether it's behind the scenes, whether it's a support role, whether it's an upfront kind of person, we're all the body of Christ and we all contribute to his mission and plan. And there is something very reassuring about knowing exactly what it is God has called us to. Because the reality is, oftentimes, it gets hard, right? It gets difficult. And if we're not real clear about God's call, it's really easy to just say, uh, enough of this, you know, enough of this. Right? But when we know God's called us to something, it causes us to persevere. Uh, Paul had been through a lot, but he could continue in his in his his job of preaching the gospel because he knew he was called to it. He knew this is what God had ordained for his life. Third question: What is the overarching purpose of my life? What is the overarching purpose? Paul says, uh, "I'm a slave of Jesus, called an apostle, uh, set apart." For the gospel, literally. New Living, I don't really like their translation of this verse very well. Um, Literally, he says, set apart uh, for the gospel. And I would like to argue or present that this ought to be the single overarching purpose of every believer's life, to be set apart for the gospel. And it's one of the reasons why I want to study the book of Romans. Because I really want to know what that means. What does it mean to be set apart for the gospel? And actually, uh, it's very clear that the rest of the book, Paul is unpacking what the gospel means. And as you look through the book of Romans, the the book is really his, his essay, his summary, and, well, not really summary, detailed look, at what the gospel is in great detail. Other places he summarizes it really briefly, but here the whole book is an unfolding of what it means, what the gospel is and what it means to live in it. And I would like to make a case for all of us to live a gospel-centered life. Right? And, and really, as we look through, as we study the book of Romans, uh, we want to look at that. But let me just highlight a couple of things Paul says this morning. Uh, that we would consider this. That you would say, you know, the thing that I want to be, no matter what it is I do, no matter what my specific individual calling and ministry, that the thing that, that covers it all, the thing that is the driving purpose of my life, is that I live as Paul. I live for the gospel. What does that mean? Um, and and, and why, would we, why would we even suggest that? Well, let me give real briefly Paul's argument in these verses. Notice what he says. He says, God promised this good news, this gospel, long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So here's the first argument. 
why, why should the gospel be the driving center of our life? First thing, Paul simply says, the whole Old Testament points to the gospel. Right? You know, the, I don't know if you've ever read through the whole Testament, but it's really long. You know? It actually makes up about 75% of the Bible. Right? And it's bewildering in some of it. You, know, you read through some of this stuff and it's like, what in the world, you know... There's like lots of blood and, you know, people dying and getting killed and, and sprinkling blood and, and, you know, pouring blood. and I mean, just very bloody. The Old Testament is very bloody, right? And uh, a lot of strange stuff goes on. One of my favorites is the, the two-goat thing, you know. You're supposed to take two goats. You kill one goat. You sprinkle the blood here. You sprinkle the blood there. You burn this. You burn that. goes up to God. Have a great barbecue. And then the other goat, you're supposed to let free, and it's supposed to go out into the wilderness. It's confusing, right? Well, it's not confusing if we see that everything in the Old Testament points to and explains uh, and prepares the way of the gospel. Uh, When we see the Old Testament in that light, it really starts to make great sense. The whole two-goat thing is a great picture of what Jesus did on the cross. When we see it in that light... It's like, whoa, I get it, right? It makes sense to me. One of my favorite uh, examples of this is, as we just studied the book of Genesis, uh, is the story of Abraham's uh, sacrificing Isaac, right? I mean, if you read the Bible and you're like a normal kind of civilized person and you read this story in Genesis of Abraham and God, God says to Abraham, I want you to go kill your son, Right? If you don't get the context of the gospel and that this is a picture, this is a portrait of something greater and more significant, you come away thinking, God's sick. (laughs) What's wrong with this guy? Who would torture somebody like that? Right? But when you see that this is a picture of God the Father in heaven who would someday sacrifice his own son for the benefit of mankind, it all starts to make sense. It all starts to fit together as part of a whole story that's not just random, isolated, bizarre events. It's all pointing to the gospel. It's all pointing to Christ. It's all painting a picture of what God's ultimate plan for the world was. So Paul says, uh, you know, first thing is, everything points to it. Everything in the Old Testament and everything in the Holy Scriptures, he says, points to the gospel. Uh, so that's, that's, that's one good reason that it may be significant in our life. Second thing, uh, it really is the overarching purpose of the triune God. Right? And notice what he says. He, he lays out some more information about the good news. And in this, he really describes the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, carrying out the mission of the gospel. Notice what he says. The good news is about the Son. Okay, so, so first of all, the gospel is the Son. The gospel is Jesus, right? But not just Jesus. He casts it in the light of uh, uh, Jesus as the Son of the Father, right? He says, in his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. Uh, so in other words, he was, he was the Messiah. Okay, he was the fulfillment. So not only does the Old Testament point to the gospel, but Jesus was the messianic fulfillment of all, uh, all that the Old Testament said as the, 
climax of Israel's history. That's what the Messiah was. The Messiah was the ultimate climax of Israel's history. So Jesus, I was pointed to in the Old Testament, but he becomes the perfect completion and fulfillment of everything Israel looked toward and for. The second coming king. Well, the, the second coming after David. The fulfillment of David's line. All right? Uh, he goes on to say, uh, he was shown to be, he was actually confirmed or appointed to be the Son of God in power when he was raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit. Um, so it was, it was the purpose of the Father to appoint him Son of God in power. Uh, simple, going all the theology of that because the book unpacks it more later. But God the Father appointed Jesus as Son of God in power uh, through the resurrection. In other words, in the resurrection, God proves and demonstrates that Jesus was everything he said he was, right? that he fulfilled all he claimed to be of himself. Right? So the Father, God the Father, approves the Son through the resurrection. But that's also done, he says, uh, through or according to the operation of the Spirit of Holiness. Right? So, you get the picture here? God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, all working together to carry out what? The purpose, the plan of the gospel, the carrying out of the gospel, the fulfillment as the center of God's salvation history. Um, and it is through Christ, he says, uh, he says, He is Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, he, he is the rightful King, the one who is to be Lord of our life. Finally, he says that, that it is through grace uh, he's received this apostleship uh, to bring the nations to faith and obedience in him. Right? So Jesus becomes the means of the mission, he becomes the focus and end of the mission. He becomes the reason for the mission. Uh, Jesus and his work, which we call the gospel. Um, it was true for Paul. In other words, what Paul is doing as he's introducing himself, he says, look, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I'm appointed as an apostle. And my life is about the gospel. Sadly, the New Living translated, translates it that he was sent out to preach the good news. But it means more than that. Right? It means that his life was living out the gospel. Sure, he preached it and proclaimed it. He went everywhere um, proclaiming who Jesus was. But it means more than that. It means that in every part of his being, he was living out the work of Christ in his life. Um, I really believe that our life will make sense when we start to see it in the light of the gospel. Um, it, it really is what gives our life meaning. Let me just close with this illustration. Uh, some of you, do, do any of you enjoy, I know there are some, we call yourself a cricket fan. I know Dave definitely is. Oh, yeah. You know, if you're, not, if you're from like Australia, New Zealand, UK, right? Well, it's an amazing game, I will admit. It's an amazing game. But the first few times I watched it, 
I was so bewildered, bewildered and confused. I just thought, what are they doing? You know, what are they doing? I didn't get it at all. And, you know, the games are quite long, and I just remember watching for quite a long time uh, in India this cricket match. And I just was so confused, right? Well, my, my Indian friends took the time and were very patient to explain to me the finer nuances of the game, like the goal, <laughs> like what's the point of it all, right? And as they explained this, it started to all kind of fit together and make sense once I understood what, what I was watching, right? Once you get the point of the goal of the game. And I'm sure other people who watch American sports or other sports have the same, uh, same struggle. If you don't really get the goal of the game, it just doesn't mean anything. It's just a bunch of people whacking balls and running all over the place, right? It's like, well, what's going on? Um, I think a lot of people live life that way, right? They live life, uh, and because they have no real clear sense of the meaning and purpose of life, they don't understand the overarching goal or end of what life is about. Life becomes just a blur of busy activities and stuff, and it doesn't really mean much, right? Uh, You see people striving for purpose and meaning in life. What does that mean? Well, it means they don't get what life is about. It means they don't get what their life, how it fits into the bigger picture of what God's doing. And I'm convinced that we will never get life. We will never really understand the meaning of life until we see that our life is, must be gospel-centered. Right? That it must be about the, something about who Jesus is, something about why he came to earth, something about the unfolding of his ministry in our, in our life that gives meaning and purpose to our life. Now, does that mean that, like Paul, we have to be obsessed with preaching the gospel everywhere we go? Well, not necessarily. You know, uh, He was an evangelist. Right? You may not be an evangelist. You may not be particularly good at proclaiming the gospel. But we all must, must learn to be very gifted at living in the gospel. Right? Uh, We should all proclaim it. We should all bear witness to it. But far beyond that, we should know what it means to live in the gospel, to live out the gospel, to see the work of Christ unfold in our life. Uh, Last thought on this. Uh, The the Bible is a big book. Uh, It was written over many thousands of years by many authors. Uh, It tells one story, right? And ultimately, the center of that story is the gospel of Jesus Christ, whatever that means. And we'll see as we look through the next couple, few months what really that means. Uh, when God looks down from across history, from the beginning of time to the end of time, right, the thing that everything revolves around is the person and work of Jesus Christ, the gospel, right? If our life is being lived in any other direction, uh, we're missing it. Right? We are just missing it. Okay? It should be the center driving force of our life, as it was for Paul. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we do thank you so much for uh, what you did when you raised up the Apostle Paul and revealed to him so much amazing truth about yourself. Uh, Lord, we thank you that he was faithful to write down his thoughts and and what the Holy Spirit had revealed to him. 
Lord, we thank you that he was a man who wanted to be identified as a slave of Jesus, called by God to uh, reach the world for you, and who saw his life centered completely in the gospel of Christ. Uh, Long that his life would be the unfolding of the gospel, both in his word and in his deed. Lord, we pray that as we study through this amazing book, that your spirit would speak to us and teach us about what it means to be gospel-centered people uh, who live our lives uh, fully in light of the meaning and purpose of the good news of Jesus. Uh, Lord, that, that our life would have ultimate meaning and would work, would make sense because we're living it as you intended. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.